If you'll reach for your Bibles with me for this morning's scripture reading, we will continue in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 17, and we'll be reading through chapter 4, verse 1. If you need a Bible, please feel free to use the Pew Bible located in front of you. And you can find today's reading on page 1166. Follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17 through verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm, thus, in the Lord, my beloved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come on this Father's Day, Lord, crying, calling, Abba, Father, that you are our Father, who is holy, 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 and yet you know us. You are not far from us, and we can cry out to you no matter where and when. Father, be with those today that are rejoicing. May we rejoice as a church with them. Father, be with those who are mourning and who have received bad news this week. May we mourn with them. Father, we cry out as a church. Speak to us today. We want to hear from you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. It was the opening round of the 1500 meters in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany. There were 10 men that day on the track getting ready to run a race, but the focus was actually on one man. His name was Jim Ryan. At that time, he was the world record holder, and he was undefeated for three years before he finally lost to a Kenyan in 1968. And so now the world awaited the rematch here in 1972, but it would never happen because during the third lap of the opening round, Jim Ryan tripped and fell. He lay on the track for an estimated time of about eight seconds while all the other nine runners passed him. Suddenly, though, he sprang up and he ran hard until he crossed the finish line. And although he came in 10th place, Ryan actually received the loudest of cheers from the crowd. Why? Because he didn't qualify for a medal that day, but he did finish what he started. That, friends, is the message of Paul here in Philippians 3. It's don't stop running until you finish the race. Keep pressing on to make your life count for God's glory. In fact, we saw last Sunday that Paul's favorite metaphor for the Christian life, what we are terming our our journey here in life, 
on, on earth, our journey here on earth, is, is running this race. And so Paul twice declares in the previous verses of what Dane read for us, he says, I press on, I press on to describe this ongoing, this grasping, this strenuous pursuit that is required to finish one's race. You know, it's Father's Day here, so I throw this out to you dads. Listen, he doesn't want to see you, Paul doesn't, eliminated from the race, but motivated to keep pressing on. And so what Paul does here, he actually exhorts us now to stand firm in the Lord. Because in this race, in this journey that we are on, in the race that God sets before us, we must not only press on in the race, but we must also stand firm in the Lord. And so Paul concludes here everything that he's been saying throughout chapter 3 with this one exhortation that you find in the very first verse of chapter 4, where he says, therefore, in other words, in light of. And so he's telling us, in light of the things I've been saying in chapter 3, these are the reasons to stand firm, but I'm also going to give you some insight into how to stand firm when he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, if you're sitting there going, now that sounds a bit confusing because Paul's just told us to keep pressing on in the race, but now he's telling us to stand firm. So which is it, Paul? Because I'm not sure I can actually do both at the same time, right? Maybe you've wondered that. Does Paul want us to press on in the race or does he want us to actually stand firm? And the answer is yes. He wants us to do both. Paul is calling us. He's calling us as Christ followers here this morning to stand firm in the Lord while we keep pressing on in the race. And although Paul is changing metaphors here from running in a race in our journey to standing firm in this battlefield, the theme is still the same. Don't waste your life. Make it count for the glory of God and do so with joy. In fact, this call to stand firm, it it actually refers to a soldier who is staying faithfully at his post no matter what happens around him. In other words, let the enemy attack as he will. The soldier's orders are clear. Stand firm, stick with it, endure, never give up. And this command is often repeated by the Apostle Paul. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, stand firm, let nothing move you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, stand firm in the faith. In Philippians 1.27, which we already looked at, he says, stand firm in one spirit. In Colossians 4.12, Paul writes, stand firm in all the will of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul writes these words, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. Now, you might be wondering why these repeated exhortations on standing firm. Why such the emphasis from the Apostle Paul here? Because Paul had a healthy respect for the devil's attempts to discourage you and to distract you from making your life count, to pressing on in the race. Paul knew that all of us here this morning, we will be tempted to quit when the journey gets tough. And so he repeats this idea over and over again in his writings and his epistles where he says, stand firm. 
Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the teachings that I have given you. And don't miss now here the outpouring of Paul's affection that is surrounded by his exhortation to us to stand firm. His affection, his love for these believers at the Philippian church is evident by all his expressions just alone in verse 1 of chapter 4 where he calls them my brothers, my dear brothers, whom I love and long for. He calls them my joy and my crown. And then again he says they're my beloved. We have seen already throughout the series, Paul loves this church like no other. They are dear to his heart. In fact, his heart soared with joy when he thought about them. And now he rejoices how far they've run in the race. And he counts them as his own crown before the Lord. And so it is with this great love, with great affection, that Paul now urges them. And he now urges us today, through his writings that we have before us, to stand firm in the Lord. Paul knows that it's only by standing firm that any of us will make our lives count for God's glory. So now the question becomes, well, how do we do this? How do you, how do I, how do we together as a church, as Christ followers, how do we stand firm in the Lord as we press on in our journey, in our race? Well, Paul tells us how in the last section of Philippians chapter 3. In fact, he tells us how on both sides of this one verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. He tells us the reasons why and even how leading up to it. And then as we will see next Sunday, in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 of chapter 4, he begins to even exhort us in telling us how and what to do to stand firm. But let's focus on the preceding verses of chapter 4 here, this last section in chapter 3. And we find that the first way to stand firm is we need to follow, number one, faithful examples of pursuing Christ. Follow faithful examples. Because, listen to me, whom you follow matters. Whom you hang out with matters. And especially so when it comes to making your life count for the glory of God. Therefore, it is imperative that we find and we follow faithful examples who are pursuing Christ and striving to follow Christ in their own life. Because Paul knows the importance of following faithful examples. And so he says here in verse 17... Brothers, in other words, the church at large, brothers and sisters in Christ, join in me in imitating me. In other words, he's saying, think as I think, do as I do, pursue what I pursue, treasure what I treasure, count as loss what I count as loss, count as gain what I count as gain, press on in the race as I press on in the race. Now, this is not arrogance on behalf of the Apostle Paul. Paul is not putting himself up on a pedestal of spiritual perfection here. We know that because he's already told us previously in this chapter, in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. So Paul is not placing himself on a pedestal above all of us. Rather, he's placing himself in the race with us. And he's saying, listen, just as I am struggling through this race and striving in this race, just as I am pressing on in this race and pursuing Christ, I invite you to follow me in that pursuit. 
This is Paul's way of saying what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And notice that Paul moves even beyond his own example here. He quickly moves beyond his example, and he draws the circle much bigger when he goes on to say in verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. You see, Paul has pointed to himself as an example to follow, but now he points to other faithful examples to follow as well, such as in context of this book, Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom these Philippian believers knew very, very well. They, like Paul, pursued hard after Christ. They were men of one thing as they pressed on in the race. And no doubt the circle is even larger, including other faithful men and women in the Philippian church who pursued Christ. What Paul's saying here, the point is that these Philippian believers needed faithful examples who could model what it looked like to pursue Christ in the journey. And we need that as well. We are not above them. We too today, we need to follow the same kind of faithful examples. So here's the question. Who are you following today in your life? And and please don't think right now, well, I don't follow anybody. Yes, you do. Sure you do. You're influenced by someone. So who are you following? Remember, whom you follow matters. And so Paul's exhortation to us here, notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen, is to pay careful attention to those who are pursuing Christ and follow their example and imitate their walk. Now, at this point, Paul's concern is not so much with beliefs that we are to embrace as it is with behavior that we are to emulate. Although, behavior always reflects beliefs. Paul uses a biblical imagery here of walking to refer to the totality of one's Christian life. So the way a person walks, in other words, is the way he or she approaches everyday life. That walk of theirs reveals the the core of one's heart. It displays the habits of one's commitments and desires and passions and priorities. In other words, a person's walk tells you if they are pursuing Christ and standing firm in the Lord. Just look at their walk. That's the evidence, in other words. And we here, we need to pay careful attention to those who are pursuing Christ and follow their example. Mark Twain humorously wrote, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. May I just say that we need more of that annoyance in our lives, though. We desperately need the annoyance of faithful examples around us to follow. But, of course, this begs a second question that we've got to ask ourselves, right? Are you, am I... Someone worthy of being followed. Now, it's Father's Day. And dads, this is a great question for us to contemplate. Dads, I throw it out to you. Dad, are you worthy of your kids following you? Walking in your walk and imitating you? 
This is a question that goes beyond just dads to everyone here, whether you're a young adult or a senior adult, whether you're a teenager or a single parent or a grandparent, whether you're an attender or a member or a leader in our church. The fact of the matter is you're either a good example to follow or you're a bad example because you can't opt out of being an example. Why? Because right now someone is watching you. And your example is either leading that person. Dad, you're either leading your children, whether they're three years old or 13 or 23 or 43. You're either leading that person to pursue Christ as their treasure or pursue the temporary treasures of this world, the treasures of a wasted life. Listen, find people who've been captured by the gospel and who are consumed with knowing Christ and follow their example. Paul says, this is how you stand firm in the Lord as you press on in the race. Number two, he says, watch out, though, for faithless enemies of the cross. Watch out for these dudes, these faithless enemies of the cross. You see, just as there are faithful examples to follow, there are also faithless examples to avoid. Paul has to issue here now, a very sharp and a very sober, sorrowful warning against these faithless examples whose walk leads down a very different path and leads to a very different destination. Look what Paul writes in verses 18 and 19. Look at it again. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Their God is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So if we're going to stand firm in the Lord, then we must watch out. We need to watch out for some people. And specifically, Paul points out these, what he calls them as enemies of the cross. You might say, well, who are these guys? Girls, gals. Who are the enemies of the cross? Well, no one seems to be able to identify them with certainty. But most Bible scholars think they are people who who made some sort of profession of Christ in the past, but now their walk, the evidence of that profession, it now contradicts that confession of Christ. It contradicts the cross of Christ. These people, they, they live a lifestyle that is seductive and even destructive. And because their lives are all about a a self-promotion and self-gratification, they contradict the message of the cross of Christ, which says you need the forgiveness of your sins, and you need the righteousness of Christ, and you are powerless to achieve that all on your own. You need a Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins. And so Paul is talking here about professing Christians who are really simply deceivers or pretenders, they're not true believers in Christ. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Because Jesus, after all, when he was here on earth, he said in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 13, that the good seed is sown in the field and it brings up a crop, but the enemy comes along and sows tares among the wheat. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Puritan William Garnell said, these are people who love God in their mouth. In other words, with their lips, they, they confess Christ, but the world is in their heart. Now, here's the tricky part about all this. These enemies of the cross are not out there. Paul says they're actually in here. Among the family of God, the true believers, the local church. Paul says, in writing in context here, that they were in the church at Philippi. He's already spoke about them. He's already called them out before. And so they actually, these enemies of the cross, can still be in the church today as well. And although they attend our churches and, and maybe even worship with us on Sundays, they are not one with us in Jesus Christ. Many people can sing the same songs. People can even pray the same prayers, engage in some of the same activities, and at the same time be pretenders in knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior through faith in Him. Sure, they speak the language of the King. But Jesus Christ is not their king. He's not their Lord. They have not given allegiance to Jesus Christ. Their allegiance is still to the things of this world. There's no allegiance to him. There's no cross-bearing example of denying self and following Jesus and pressing on in the race no matter what. This is a sober reminder here to all of us this morning. That just because someone says a prayer and professes faith in Christ, it doesn't make them a Christian. So the question that we, all of us here, need to ask ourselves, we need to be confronted with this, is are you a true believer in Jesus Christ here this morning? Or are you a pretender? Does your walk, does it contradict your so-called confession of Christ and the message of the cross? Or is your walk, is it at least consistent with your profession? I never said perfect. perfect. None of our walks is going to be perfect. We're all going to stumble and fall and sin. And yet, when we are true believers, when we sin, we, we are convicted by that. The Spirit works in us to compel us to repent of our sin and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, not for salvation, but for fellowship with him again. That's the evidence of a true believer. There's a yearning to be with the people of God, a yearning to worship with the people of God. That's part of our walk. And so don't miss Paul's emotion as well as he writes about these enemies of the cross. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Well, that's interesting because I, I just, I, when I first read this, I'm like, why is Paul crying? What's up with that? Here's the apostle Paul and he's crying. Well, notice this in your notes on the screen. The reason he's weeping is because there are many who are wasting their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. That is, their walk contradicts their confession of Christ and his cross. And this breaks Paul's heart. That's why he's weeping. You see, what alarms Paul here is their departure from the message of the cross in their lives. This is why Paul weeps about them as he writes about them. 
or I should say weeps over them. Paul is moved to tears because these people, whom some of them he probably knows personally, probably knows by name, and he cares about them. They claim to belong to Jesus, and yet their walk contradicts the cross of Christ. Whatever words they may have spoken in the past. In fact, it's interesting because this is the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of crying in the present tense. In other words, as he's penning this letter, he is weeping over these people. And so as we read our own scriptures here of this, you need to see these verses spotted with the tears of the Apostle Paul. This means we, we ourselves, as true believers, we ought to weep over the state of those whose lives oppose the message of the cross. And so let us take Paul's tears as a reminder that we here, we ought to be brokenhearted that so many people are wasting their lives as they pursue the treasures of this world instead of the treasures of Christ. And when we see people wasting their lives, it should not make us proud, It should not make us arrogant, but it should humble us. It should provoke us to greater pity, greater passion, to do everything we can to pray for them and to rescue them with the saving grace of the gospel that redeemed us. And so with tears streaming down his face, Paul now describes these, quote, enemies of the cross with four different characteristics. Notice quickly, first of all, their destiny. Their end is destruction. Those who live as enemies of the cross are ultimately headed for destruction. In other words, they are on a path towards judgment, and it's eternal judgment. Those who live their lives without submitting to the message of the cross are headed to eternal judgment in hell. But don't think that that means that they will cease to exist. Listen, whenever Jesus used the word destroy in the Gospels, It never meant to pass out of existence, but to be delivered up to misery. This terrifying future existence of the unbeliever without Christ is described all throughout the New Testament as eternal hopelessness, everlasting torment, irredeemable lostness, never-ending darkness, eternal despair, and banishment from the presence of God forever. You see, the question is not, does a person cease to exist? The question is, where will that person exist for eternity? And the answer to that question for these people, for Paul, it brought tears streaming to his face. Because their destiny, their end, is eternal destruction. Number two, their master is their belly. Their God, in other words, is their belly. Belly, this this word belly, it, it actually captures their devotion to bodily appetites. But not just food. It includes food, but not just food. It also includes things like sex satisfying such lustful urges, in other words, is their highest aim in life. Pleasing self, in other words, think of it this way, self-gratification. Pleasing self is their functional God in their lives. In other words, they are slaves to their lust. They cannot control themselves, and they go wherever their appetites, their lustful appetites leads them. What a way to live, right? And they do this in the name of freedom. We've heard that in our culture. 
I'm free. I can do whatever I want. They do this in the name of freedom, throwing off all restraints. But in reality, they are enslaved to their lust for more and more thrills that never seem to satisfy. And so what motivates them isn't a concern for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, but rather the gratification of their physical lust. They have other words. They have traded the good and glorious God that made them for a pathetic little God that can do nothing for them except leave them feeling empty, guilty, and shameful. Number three, their disgrace. Their glory is in their shame. Paul's saying that these people find their greatest glory in that which is shameful. In other words, the very things which they should be ashamed of, they boast in and brag about. They flaunt their sexuality. They move from bed to bed in sexual immorality. They openly pursue sensual pleasure. In essence, they celebrate what offends our holy God. They are most proud of their worst perversions. It's a lifestyle that says, I don't need you, God. I call the shots in my life. I have my own freedom. I'll do whatever I want to do. These enemies of the cross, like many people today, they took great pride in being, quote, enlightened and liberated. But in reality, they were living in the darkness and bondage of their sins. And then it leads you to, number four, their perspective. Their minds are set on earthly things. In other words, these people put their heart and their hope in the things of the world. They are literally, they are captivated, they are consumed by the things of this earth. Life is all about living in the moment and doing whatever feels good at the time. There's no thought about eternity. There's no thought about spiritual reality that transcends this physical life and world. There's no vision for anything beyond themselves in advancing their own cause in this world. As one author writes... Materialism is their highest religion. Fashion is their sacred liturgy. Celebrities are their priestly guides. Possessions are their greatest reward. And earth is their heaven. And so with tears streaming down his cheeks, Paul informs the church at Philippi that for these enemies of the cross, earth will be the closest they will ever get to heaven. Now you think about that for me. Forget their resume. This will be their obituary. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their glory is in their shame. Their God was in their belly. And now their end is eternal destruction in hell. Here's Paul's point. When it comes to standing firm in the Lord, he's saying to us today, who you follow matters. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes what? Wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so don't become a fool by following the ways of such foolish people as these enemies of the cross. Don't imitate their walk, a walk that leads to a wasted life. Paul is exhorting us here. He's saying, listen, follow faithful examples of those who are making their lives count for God and imitate their walk of pursuing Christ and pressing on in the race. And the third and final key to standing firm in the Lord is this. Live in light of your true citizenship in heaven. Live in light of your true citizenship. 
which is in heaven. Paul concludes all of this with this glorious, wonderful reminder in verse 20. Look at it. Where he says, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Now those words would have had some special meaning to these Philippian believers since they were granted Roman citizenship even though they were living some 800 miles from the imperial capital. They lived in Philippi. But their citizenship was where? It was in Rome. And in a similar way, we live here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, Paul is saying to us, listen, live in light, live in a way that reflects your true citizenship. Yes, we understand we have a a temporary citizenship here on earth, but our ultimate eternal citizenship is in heaven. Live in light of that. Sam Gordon writes, as a Christian, you live on planet earth, but you belong to another world. You set up your tent here, but you don't put down roots here. Christians are not vagabonds without a home. We are not fugitives on the run from home. We are pilgrims traveling home. In other words, we're on a journey. And Paul intends for us to experience joy on this journey through this earth to the next life, a better life, a glorious life in heaven for all eternity. Now, this reality... It should have a tremendous impact on how we live if we will embrace it, if we will apply it. The city, understand, the city that defines your destiny. It is not one in which you were born in, nor the one in which you were raised in. It is the city toward which you are moving to. That's the city that defines you. I know some of us were born here in the big city of Kansas City, right? How many were born in Kansas City? Yeah, how many of you were born in rural Kansas? Like myself. I was born in Kiowa, the great metropolis of Kiowa, Kansas. How many have heard of it? I knew knew there would be a back row back there that heard of it because they're from Osborne, Kansas. Kind of like... Well, this is bigger than Kiowa, Kansas. Kiowa, Kansas is a farm community. The only reason I was born in that farm community, because at the time my parents lived in a smaller farm community, Hazleton, Kansas, which at the time was a population of 75. And if for excitement, you went to the post office. Listen, that's not defining my destiny. I don't care what city you were born in. I don't care what city you were raised in. Listen, that doesn't matter. It's where we're headed. That's what Paul's saying here. Writing to people raised in the pagan culture of a Macedonian city called Philippi, Paul declares that their real identity here is now defined by a city that they have never seen and they have never visited. It's a heavenly city that lies ahead as their joyful destiny. Therefore, this heavenly citizenship, it must control our character and our conduct here in the present, even here on earth, even before we reach our eternal home. In the same way, although we have not yet seen heaven, our status as citizens should make a difference in our lives now. Listen, that status as a citizenship in heaven, that should transform our passions today. It should transform our 
priorities today, our values today. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, if then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he says, he continues, listen to what Paul writes. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, do you understand the impact that this heavenly citizenship should have on our lives today, in our journey now? And if this reality is not impacting your life now, if it's not changing how you live now, if your mind is still set on earthly things, then perhaps your true citizenship is not, can I say this, in heaven. Perhaps it's still here on earth. But for those of us here whose citizenship is in heaven, notice what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. This is true for you. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here, Paul just gives us two evidences of our heavenly citizenship. Number one, we are awaiting, and we are doing so eagerly for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. That is the first evidence that our true citizenship is in heaven. Notice this. Our hope is not... In the coming of our Lord. What? What did you just say? Our hope is not in the coming of our Lord. Paul phrases it very specifically. He says our hope is in the Lord who is coming. Big difference. In other words, we are not awaiting for an event to bail us out on our journey. We are waiting for a person that we know as our Savior and Lord who we treasure above everything in this world. Heaven isn't just about a place. Do you get that? Do you know that? Heaven is more about a person. And we are eagerly awaiting for that person to return and gather his church and take us with him. Paul wants us to see that what makes heaven, quote, heavenly, what makes our citizenship a source of boundless joy, it is the presence of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are waiting eagerly for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Woo! Number two, Paul says, we are expecting a glorious transformation of our earthly bodies. Woo! That one's great too. Think of it this way. Your body's going to get an upgrade. That's just awesome. Think about it. My body's going to get an upgrade. Some of you have to have surgeries to get upgrades. Some of you have had hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder surgery. Upgrade. But we're going to get a glorious, wonderful, upgraded body, and it's going to be yours for all eternity. People ask, or they wonder, man, how am I going to look when I get to heaven? 
And the short answer is better. You're going to look much, much better. You're going to get the body you've always dreamed of. Paul says Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Our Savior, listen, he's already rescued us from God's wrath on the cross. That's wonderful, amen? Glorious. But that's not all that he has in store for us. Jesus will also rescue us from this toxic byproducts of humanity's rebellion. Because when Jesus returns, he is going to raise up our sin-stained, suffering-scarred bodies from the dead, and he's going to give us glorious bodies like his. You say, how's that going to happen? Paul says that Jesus will transform us by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If Jesus can subject all things to himself, then he can surely and easily transform our lowly bodies. And when Paul says all things, he means that every part of creation will be brought under his sovereign rule. And to all this, you know what I say? You know what Paul says? Let us stand firm in the Lord. That's Paul's conclusion to the matter. Let us stand firm in the Lord. Let us follow faithful examples of pursuing Christ. Let us live in light of our true citizenship in heaven. In doing so, let us now make our lives count for the glory of God with joy. And so here's the concluding question we are confronting with. Are you wasting your life? Or are you making it count? Listen, no matter where you are at in that process, no matter where you are at in life, here's the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. With God's grace, listen to me, it is never too late to begin making your life count for God's glory. Never. Doesn't matter where you were born. Doesn't matter where you grew up. Your past doesn't matter in a sense because God redeems it. And in the present, he changes you. He transforms you. He sets you on a new journey, one that when lived for his, according to his ways and his will, it leads to a life that counts. If I may, I, I, being Father's Day, let me, let me conclude with an address to you fathers, a challenge to you dads here this morning. Fathers, where, where are you at in this? What, what about you? Fathers, are, are you making your life count for God's glory? And making your life count, listen, it's not about giving your kids as much as you can. It just isn't. That's not what it's about. It's not providing them everything. Listen, it's about giving your kids a faithful example to follow. Dads, are you doing that? Is your walk worthy of following by your child, your son, your daughter, as you follow and pursue Christ? Because I'm telling you, your kids are going to follow you. Your kids will repeat the same pattern, more than likely, that you sobering, is it? Challenging, is it? Convicting, is it? But with the grace of God, listen, 
the changes can be made that are necessary. We don't do this in our own power. We do this by the Spirit and with the fellowship of one another and their encouragement in the body of Christ to press on in this journey. Not perfectly, but holistically together with the desire to honor the Lord. Listen, making your life count is not about trying to be the coolest dad on the wor- in the world. It's not about trying to be the dad who provides the most fun for your kids. It's about you pursuing Christ. It's about you standing firm in the Lord. And so let me encourage you, don't be one of the, quote, many who are wasting their lives by pursuing the treasures of this world. Instead, make your life count by pursuing Jesus as your greatest treasure. Dads, will you make that your commitment this morning? Will you surrender to Jesus Christ? And so with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, and as we take a moment to respond to God's word here this morning, dads especially, but all of us, this is applicable for all of us here this morning, but especially to us dads, would you pray to the Lord? Would you cry out to him? And ask for his grace to stand firm. Ask for his grace to be one who has a walk that is worthy of following and imitating. And if you're a dad who has been struggling with that in the past, ask God for his forgiveness. Ask him to to help you to begin in a new journey, in a new way, a new commitment. It's never too late to begin making your life count. And so go to the Lord in the quietness of your heart. And I would ask everyone else, would you pray for yourself, but also for the fathers here today? Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace. Oh, your amazing grace. And the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. May we be satisfied with Jesus instead of pursuing the pleasures of this world. May Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control, may it cause us to stand firm in him until he returns. And Lord, may you extend your grace to all the fathers here this morning. Lord, I know it's not easy in this day and age. There's all these distractions. There's, it can be discouraging, but Lord, encourage us. Help us to see that this is possible, not in our own power, but by your power. To stand firm in the Lord. May we be dads that are known for that, of standing firm. And again, not perfection, but in your grace and by your power. It's these things, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.